Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about gastroesophageal reflux disease. If you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com slash g-o-r-d or in the gastroenterology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is often abbreviated to GORD or G-O-R-D, is where acid from the stomach refluxes through the lower esophageal sphincter at the bottom of the esophagus and irritates the lining of the esophagus. Now the esophagus has a squamous epithelial lining, which makes it more sensitive to the effects of the stomach acid. And the stomach has a columnar epithelial lining that's more protective against stomach acid. Let's talk about the presentation of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Dyspepsia is a non-specific term that's used to describe the features of indigestion, and it covers some of the symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. And these are things like heartburn, a sensation of acid regurgitation or acid coming to the back of their throat. Patients can get pain in the retrosternal or behind the sternum area or in the epigastric area, which is at the top of the stomach. They can get symptoms of bloating, changes in their bowel habit, nocturnal cough. So when they're lying flat at night, acid can irritate the back of the throat and cause a dry cough. And they can also develop a hoarse voice. So these are all things that should make you think about gastroesophageal reflux disease as a differential. Let's talk about when you would refer a patient for an endoscopy. And an endoscopy is where they put a camera through the throat, down the esophagus and into the stomach to investigate for things like peptic ulcers, inflammation of the esophagus, inflammation of the stomach, Barrett's esophagus, which we'll talk about later, and then any malignancy or cancer of the esophagus or the stomach. Patients who've got evidence that they're having a bleed from their stomach or their esophagus or their duodenum need to have urgent admission for an urgent endoscopy. And the signs that might make you think of this are melina, so dark, tarry, black stools, or coffee ground vomiting, which is where you vomit something that looks like coffee grounds, which is actually digested blood. Patients with symptoms suspicious of cancer should have a two-week wait referral so that the endoscopy is performed within two weeks to make a diagnosis as early as possible. NICE guidelines have various complex criteria for when you should refer urgently and when you should refer routinely to rule out cancer. There's a few key red flags that indicate a referral for suspected cancer and these are things like dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing, And anybody who has dysphagia at any age will get a two-week wait referral. Patients age over 55 are considered to be higher risk. So this is generally the NICE guidelines cutoff criteria for the age at which you would do an urgent referral versus a routine referral. Weight loss is a key feature, particularly when coupled with other upper GI symptoms. So things like upper abdominal pain, reflux symptoms, treatment-resistant dyspepsia, so dyspepsia that persists despite treatment, nausea and vomiting, a low haemoglobin count, particularly iron deficiency anemia, which would indicate that there's some chronic bleeding going on, 
An erased platelet count is also a red flag for some kind of cancer. So how do you manage patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease? You need to start with lifestyle advice. So this is things like reducing tea, coffee and alcohol, advising them to lose weight, avoid smoking, having smaller, lighter meals, avoiding heavy meals before bedtime, and then staying upright after meals rather than lying flat so that the food goes downwards with gravity rather than coming back up into the esophagus. There's a few acid neutralizing medication that we can use. So these are antacids that are taken when they're required, things like Gaviscon and Rennie tablets. And then proton pump inhibitors are the mainstay of treatment. And these work by reducing the acid that is secreted in the stomach. So examples of proton pump inhibitors are omeprazole and lanzoprazole. Ranitidine is also used as an alternative to proton pump inhibitors. And this is a H2 receptor antagonist or an antihistamine. And it works to reduce stomach acid. There's also surgery for reflux. And this is called a laparoscopic fundoplication. And this is where they take the fundus of the stomach and tie it around the lower esophagus so that they narrow the lower esophageal sphincter and tighten that sphincter so that acid is less likely to reflux through it. A very important topic when you're talking about gastroesophageal reflux is helicobacter pylori. So let's talk about H. pylori. This is a gram-negative aerobic bacteria that lives in the stomach and it causes damage to the epithelial lining of the stomach and results in gastritis, ulcers and an increased risk of stomach cancer. Now normally the stomach is quite a hostile environment to bacteria because of the acid, but H. pylori avoids the acidic environment by forcing its way into the gastric mucosa, and this creates breaks in the mucosa that exposes those epithelial cells underneath to the acid and causes damage to those cells. The bacteria also produces ammonia that helps to neutralise the stomach acid, but this ammonia directly damages the epithelial cells as well. There's also other chemicals that are produced by the bacteria that damage the epithelial lining. So all in all, H. pylori is very bad for the epithelial cells. We would offer a test for H. pylori to anyone who has dyspepsia. It's worth remembering that patients need to have two weeks without using a PPI before being tested for H. pylori to make sure they get an accurate result. There's three tests we can use to test for H. pylori. The first is called a urea breath test, and this involves getting the patient to drink radio-labeled carbon-13 urea. And normally, this urea would just pass through the body, but if H. pylori is present, it digests that urea using urease enzymes. The patient then has a breath test where they breathe out into a machine, and that machine looks for the carbon dioxide that contains the carbon-13 molecule. And if it's positive, you know that the H. pylori is present. They can also do a stool antigen test where the patient provides a stool sample that's tested for the antigen from the H. pylori bacteria. And finally, there's something called a rapid urease test that can be performed during an endoscopy. And a rapid urease test is also known as a CLO test. And it's called CLO because it's CLO meaning Campylobacter-like organism test. 
and it's performed during an endoscopy and it involves taking a small biopsy of the stomach mucosa. Urea is then added to the sample and if H. pylori is present, they produce a urease enzymes that convert that urea into ammonia. And then the ammonia makes the solution more alkaline. So when they test the solution with a pH test, it'll be more alkaline, giving a positive result, indicating that the H. pylori bacteria is present. How do we eradicate the H. pylori bacteria? It involves triple therapy with a proton pump inhibitor, such as omeprazole, plus two antibiotics, such as amoxicillin or clarithromycin. And usually the eradication regime requires seven days of treatment. You don't routinely have to test whether the eradication has been successful. It's usually presumed to be successful, but a urea breath test can be repeated as a test of eradication if required. Finally, let's talk about a condition called Barrett's esophagus. And this is a result of a long period of acid reflux into the esophagus. Constant reflux of acid through the lower esophageal sphincter causes the lower esophageal epithelium to change in a process that's called metaplasia. And it changes from a squamous epithelium to a columnar epithelium. And this change to a columnar epithelium is called Barrett's esophagus. When this happens, patients often get an improvement in their reflux symptoms because those columnar epithelium are more resistant to the effects of acid. Barrett's esophagus is actually considered a pre-malignant condition, so it's a risk factor for developing adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. And if you develop Barrett's esophagus, you have about a 3-5% to lifetime risk of developing adenocarcinoma. Therefore, patients who are identified as having Barrett's esophagus are monitored for adenocarcinoma by regular endoscopies. In some patients, there's a progression from Barrett's esophagus, which remember is columnar epithelium with no dysplasia, to low-grade dysplasia, then to high-grade dysplasia, and then on to adenocarcinoma. So if you identify low or high-grade dysplasia, treatment can be put in place to prevent it progressing to adenocarcinoma. Treatment of Barrett's esophagus is with proton pump inhibitors, such as omeprazole or lansoprazole. And there's actually some new evidence that's come out suggesting that regular aspirin could reduce the rate of adenocarcinoma developing. However, this hasn't yet made it into the guidelines. It's possible to use ablation treatment during an endoscopy with things like photodynamic therapy, laser therapy or cryotherapy or cold therapy to destroy the epithelium so that it's replaced with normal cells when those cells grow back. And this is not usually recommended in patients with no dysplasia, but it has a role in patients who have low or high grade dysplasia to attempt to prevent the progression of that Barrett's esophagus onto adenocarcinoma. So thanks for listening to this episode on gastroesophageal reflux disease. I hope you found it helpful, and if you did, why not share it with one of your colleagues so it can help them out too? If you want to help me out, then you could leave me a rating or a review on your podcast app or the iTunes store, whichever you use. And I hope you tune in to the next episode, which will be on peptic ulcers.